In a Broadway career that's already almost two decades old, she has made her mark in both musicals, including My Favorite Year, Cabaret, and the current Promises, Promises, as well as plays, including Mauritius, The Iceman Cometh, and Noises Off. And she's achieved all of that after dropping out of Carnegie Mellon to pursue her dreams in New York. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet and talk with Katie Finneran. Hello, Howard. Hi, Katie. So, promises, promises. I was struck as, as I was doing my homework before this, because I first saw you in my favorite year, I thought, I've always thought of you as a musical actress. And we started running down things, and musicals have only punctuated your career. They, your, your bread and butter has been plays. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that I, I love musicals. I really do. Um, I think I have a nice voice. I think I have a really you know, great, strong voice. But I think that I'm not blessed with the kind of voice like Sherry Renee Scott or Kristen Chenoweth or like those great Alice Ripley, those great, beautiful, strong American musical theater voices. And so I tend to... Um, to go towards the character roles in musicals. And those, for my sort of stature and my sort of uh, uh, look and presence, don't come up that often. And uh, But when they do, I love to grab them because I love doing musicals. So you speak of character roles. Clearly <laughs> you have a fabulous character role in Promises, Promises. Um, were you – did you have to audition for the part or were you just approached? You know, I actually was approached uh, to do – the night before they did a reading of it two years ago to um, – I think it was to replace somebody that, that was supposed to do it. And I happened to know Craig Zaden and Neil Marin and Rob Ashford who I actually did my favorite year with. He was our dance captain and one of the um, chorus people in the show and he's just a great guy. They, the three of them asked me to do this reading and uh, so I got it the night before and we did uh, – it was Sean Hayes and another actress and uh, I guess they like what I did and offered me the role after two years, which was great. But let's let's be clear. You had one night to prepare yes. for a reading. <laughs> and based on that, you were offered the role you know, two years later. I actually bombed quite heavily during the read-through. We have a, we have a rehearsal during the day and then in the afternoon we had a, a read-through with many very heavy-hitting producers mm-hmm. of the Broadway and in movie, you know, business. And uh, during, I didn't quite know, I didn't have much time to prepare, so I didn't quite know what to do with the role. And truthfully, on the page, it's such brilliant writing, but it's so expansive as to what you could do character-wise with it. The writing is great, but it's not really that specific what, I mean, it could be anything. So I remember trying something during the rehearsal (laughs) and looking at Sean and going, well, that didn't work, and feeling very ashamed. And then after, I sort of, during the lunch break, I sort of figured out what would be the strong point of the character and sort of, you know, got it together and then made it happen during the uh, read-through in the afternoon. Normally, with somebody who was revisiting a role, I'd ask all about, well, how is the character different now than the character was? But what was the process once you had time to discover this character over the course of a rehearsal period as opposed to apparently 24 hours? Well, truthfully, I was very nervous about it because I don't – I couldn't remember what I did that actually got me the job. <laughs> it was such a short-term, you know, uh, the, you know, and, and energy sort of uh, streaming – performance that afternoon that I could not remember what it was that I hit that got me the job. Hmm. So two years later, I truthfully could not remember what they liked about me so much that that got me the job. <laughs> so I had to do some soul searching and I even said to Sean Hayes, and I'm like, I don't really remember what I did two years ago. But um, So I kind of started fresh and uh, I knew that Rob trusted me and um, Rob Ashford is just such a great, trusting, you know, strong, confident director and uh, that he had chosen me for a reason and um, you know, usually you have time to play in rehearsal to, to make the right choices. And so I, when I knew that Kristen Chenoweth was cast, she's an old friend and I knew that the qualities that she would have as Fran. And so I decided that I wanted to do the antithesis of that and sort of make this character as tall and as dark and as raspy voiced and sort of body and loose and, you know, the antithesis of, of Kristen Chenoweth's Fran. So that's pretty much how I based it. And then we, I was also watching Rodney Dangerfield's uh, um, uh, Back to School with my fiance, Darren Goldstein, and uh, Sally Kellerman came on. And I said, well, that's a good voice. The show oh, Sally for a minute Kellerman. I thought you were telling 
telling me you were modeling it on <laughs> Rodney it. Dangerfield. No, no, no. I was very the, confused. These are the tidbits you like to hear on these interviews, <laughs> isn't it? You know. So that's pretty much that's where I kind of got her like so la la boys la 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 la. You know, Sally Kellerman. Um, so so kudos to Sally Kellerman. Hmm. Given that it's a two scene role, did you either start rehearsal later than other people? Did you have as as much time to spend on it. I'm just wondering because it's so obviously fully formed, but it there's so much that goes on around a musical, and and your your time within it. Is, I, is I was quite panicked about that because uh, actually Dick Latessa and I, are, Dick has a tiny scene in the first act, but mostly our roles are in the second act, and so we'd call each other and be like, well, "Did you get called today? <laughs> no, did you get? It was about four weeks before." I actually had a formal scene rehearsal. I had had dance rehearsals. Um, the first read-through, the first day, uh, Rob Ashford put his hand on my shoulder and said, yeah, uh, you're going to want to start stretching. I had no idea I would be dancing in the show. And he created this wonderful comedic sort of ballet, which was just great for, for me. Um, but it was a long – it was about three and a half weeks before I actually got to do the scene. And I was getting a little bit nervous because I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be doing with it yet. And I needed Rob's sort of you know, approval and his uh, you know, confidence and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a tricky process because you don't, didn't quite feel a part of the whole in, in waiting you know, three and a half, four weeks to start you know, folding in your part of the show. And in fact – you don't even have scenes with many of of the other lead no, players. No, I remember. Show. No, and and I remember. Well, Kristen Chenoweth is an old friend, like I said, and so and she's passed out during my scene. So actually, when we started running the scenes with the audience, I was like, "Can you just keep an eye open and tell me if you think this is funny?" <laughs> so she'd sort of give me little tips, and uh, but it was such an easy flowing process. Like Rob Ashford is so calm and so imbues you with such um, you know trust and. And confidence, and he just allows for a really easygoing playground. And you know, nothing is wrong. There's plenty of time. It's exactly what you want in a creative process. He was just extraordinary. Had you gone back and listened to the original cast album, did you have any reference from the original production? Since this is the first revival, I did listen to the to the um, the song because I wanted to know what my song was, and I did listen to it. And it didn't strike me as I wasn't quite sure what the song was about or how it sort of. You know, filled in the story, but uh, but that really came when we started rehearsing it. Hmm. You know, sort of the intentions of the song and what it was going to be, and it was just a really easygoing, playful, joyful process with Sean Hayes. He's so um, you know, he's just a brilliant comedic actor and and you know, dramatic actor. He's if you saw him in the Martin and Lewis, um, actually Neil Neil. Uh, Marin and Craig Zanin produced that. But I thought his work was extraordinary and very simple and very um, calm and, and just very provocative. Um, but uh, playing with him in a rehearsal space, you never know how somebody's going to rehearse or how what their style is. And we just got along like brother and sister immediately. In rehearsal, you've got Rob Ashford there every minute looking at you. Now the show's been running a little while – how much are you playing on stage? How much are you finding in performance? Uh, how much do you risk cracking each other up? You know what? I'm not a big laugher, but I do have to say that um, it, it's Sean's a little bit of a giggler, <laughs> so, and he'll be the first to admit it. It's it's kind of it's really sweet. So anytime I do something new on stage, there's always that moment where I'm not sure if he's going to go or not. But we we're always sort of fresh and open with each other. It's it always feels new, and. It always feels new because there's 1,800 new people there every night. You know, I just it always feels fresh to me. Well, that's it wasn't even a question of fresh, just the idea of you know there's experimentation. You can you can play around with that part and not you know obviously you don't want to go too far. Yeah, there's, but there's a some little flexibility. Bit of that. Yeah. What was the? Ex- I'm always curious the experience of taking it out of the rehearsal room and and putting it in front of an audience. And did you find? either the reaction to the character or the reaction to the humor different than what everybody sitting around the rehearsal room thought it was going to be? You know, it was kind of the same. I mean, it's really, it's such a, like, again, Neil Simon's writing is so pure. It's so, it's all about antithesis, you know. I love you, but I really hate you. You know, it's sort of, it's just, it's such, so, such clean, great writing that it's so well immediately translated 
to an audience. It's it's so well translated. Like they get it immediately, even though the, the character is a little bit of fish out of water with the with the show, the story. You're not quite sure who this woman is when when the second act opens. But I think that immediate. It's so familiar that person that says, you know. I love you, but I really hate you. You know, it's, it's just like that's so familiar. That push me, pull me thing is so familiar. And the drunk scene is just so familiar to an audience that they warm up really, really quickly. And they, they I think just the writing is so good that they, they get it immediately. And where was Neil Simon throughout the rehearsal and preview process? Was he was he there. Yeah, he was there. He was at a bunch of rehearsals. So, you know, he wasn't there every day, but he was at a bunch of rehearsals. Yeah, he's a great he's a great guy. He's an old uh, friend of mine. We did a play. Um, oh, I guess like fifteen years ago. Nineteen ninety seven. Was for it seven ninety six ninety seven? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I'm able to talk to him really easily. And and uh, we didn't change really anything. I think we might have changed maybe one line here or there, but for the most part, it was like perfectly. So he was written. not tweaking that at all. No, no, not really. Hmm. He tweaked some other things, but but he really uh, the scene is just so well written that. Uh, he, he was just there to – he really sort of just put his hand on my back and said, don't do anything different. <laughs> don't change it. Don't do any more. Don't do any less. Just keep it the way it is. Huh. So that's always a good vote of confidence. And uh, did Burt Backrack happen by at any time? You know, he did at some point uh, uh, really towards, towards the opening he was there. Yeah. So that was wonderful to see him and his family. Such a great score. It's so exciting. And the minute that, op- that the, or the overture starts, it's just every time. You know, I have this uh, dressing room on the second floor down the hall from, you know, right next door to Tony and Dick and, and Kristen. And um, the minute that or- overture starts, when we first started doing the show, I have a, a toilet, which is right offset of my separate from my dressing room. It's just a toilet a door, and there's a door and then there's another door. And the other door is a secret door to the first box in the theater. So I call it the view from the loo. I can actually watch the show from my bathroom. <laughs> this is Dick Latessa and I share it. And we can actually uh, walk out. The classy out. stories yes. of Broadway stardom the classy that stories we're of Broadway. People. So you can actually go in there, open the door, and you can watch the show from behind the curtain in, in, this, in the box in the theater from the mezzanine. And, uh, I wonder who thrilling. that was built for. I know, right? Right. <laughs> probably uh, uh, Ethel, uh, Ethel Merman probably had it up there as her secret hiding spot. <laughs> But um, but it was it's so thrilling to me the music and, and mm. what Rob Ashford has done with the opening number and all the dancers sing, you know singing and dancing through the overture is just great. I know the New York Times has asked you a bit about this, but given that it is a two and a half hour show, what is there a difference to what you're doing leading up to your scenes in Act Two? Basically, what's your your Act One, and then. Is there something different after you finish up and you're waiting for the curtain call? Um, you know, the f- I'm, I'm, I'm never bored. Like I'm a person that could just find interests whenever, wherever I am. If I'm at the doctor's office waiting, I just I, I never feel bored. So it's like I'm always got something. I'm, I'm always talking to Dick Latessa or Tony Goldwyn or Kristen when she's off stage. Sean is usually on stage the entire show, so I never really see him during the show. But um, – I usually do a little bit of yoga. I warm up my voice. I do a lot of uh, vocal, like uh, strange vocal growls and stuff like that. So I like to warm up my voice a lot. I do warm up my body. At first, I was like, I'm not doing that much. I don't really need to warm up my body that much. But doing all that drunken stuff, I felt like I was hit by a truck the first couple of weeks. <laughs> so now I warm up. And uh, I just – a lot of times I'll, I'll pop out and watch some of the show just to feel connected to it, hmm. especially when something silly happens or funny happens. I'll pop out and, and – and watch if the audience is laughing in a in a crazy way. I'll I'll run <laughs> out there. Suddenly the toilet door opens. Yeah, I'll and watch there, there you are. And there I am. So uh, it's but but I uh, I really enjoy my time off stage. I love being backstage more than any place else. I'm so at home there. Hmm. I love being in a theater. So interesting. Well, let's go back. You you were born in Chicago, moved to Miami. When I was about seven or eight. So yes. Miami was really where you were, yes. were growing up. And what was your theater exposure? Well, you know, uh, the University of Miami had this extraordinary theater program. Um, it was – I think I was 12, 12 years old. And I found out about it just through some kids I heard talking about it. And it was a program for 12-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And it was an intense college, you know, university program with all the university teachers. And it was musical theater. And it was the first real intense training that I had had. And I really just soaked it all in. In fact, I won this award that still means so much to me to this day that I was like the best camper or the best performer of the – 
program. And I thought if I'm 12 and there's 18-year-olds here and I I loved it that much and they thought something of me, then I must be good at this a little bit, you know. Um, that meant a lot to me. It was a very intense training, um, wonderful training. And then I got into um, Southwood School for the Arts, which is a junior high school for ninth grade, and then New World School of the Arts, which was started by Richard Klein, who actually started LaGuardia School for the Arts. Hmm. So it was a very they, – they brought teachers in from all over the United States, the best academic teachers, the best – I actually met Uta Hagen at a um, symposium she did at my high school in Miami for wow. two days. So it was uh, – I would think that Hagen would have frightened high school students. Yeah, and she did, you know, <laughs> and she did. But she was an extraordinary uh, influence on me and I, and I thought, well, that's, that's, where, that's where it's at right there. She's so, the real deal. So in doing all of this, had you already decided, you know, when you won your first award, OK, this is going to be my career? You know, I, I didn't mean to mention the award. It's kind of silly. But it was a kind of a validation that if these, sure. if these important people from this university think that I have something, you know, that's – special, then I think that's pretty neat because I really sure do love this. You know, that that just meant a lot to me that, that these professional people were, were saying, were validating me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had cho- I had decided when I was about five that it's what I wanted to do. Wow. So fortunate because it, that that has never changed in my life. Like I knew, I think it was Sound of Music or it was something, some Christmas pageant I did at my school where they chose me to perform. And just the reaction with the audience and the sort of the communication with the audience was just something that I I knew right away. And I just, I went, oh, that that will be my life. I'm not sure what that is yet, but that will be my life. And that Mm -hmm. has never, ever changed through waitressing jobs through, you know, nannying jobs and janitorial jobs. <laughs> and Did your parents get it? They right got off? it. They or was really, it something they kept trying to steer you away I from? I think it made them very proud that I was actually good at it and I, I was sort of – that I would perform in these places and there were these wonderful schools in Miami that really supported my my um, yearnings and, and I think they they felt really proud that I was good at it and, hmm. that, and that I had this education. They felt proud. I think they've always felt proud. And so there was supportive. no there was no effort to say, "Oh, honey, you need to no, study something real. It, you need something to fall back on." They think they thought it was neat. Now, my my parents told me later that they had a huge. They've been together since they were fourteen. They're beautiful people. They've wow. they're, they're, they've been married, you know, since they were twenty one, and they just celebrated their. Um, uh, 47th wedding anniversary um, and they never really fight but they said one of their biggest fights they ever had was when I wanted to leave Carnegie Mellon my mother said you know she must finish college she must and my dad's like if she has something to fall back on then she will hmm. and he really defended me and said you know she should go she feels so strongly about this we should just let her go live her life well let's talk about that you did upon graduating high school get accepted to Carnegie Mellon you went for how long? I went for one year and that was really a financial uh, uh, decision. I, I really loved the school but I'd had a lot of very, very intense – You know, I went to school from about 7 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night in downtown Miami. I took a, the metro rail every morning. It's you know, 6. So I was, I was getting you know, college univer- university training like from really extraordinary artists that would come down from New York and very intense training and, and – um, a lot of that I was repeating at Carnegie Mellon. It's an extraordinary program there. But I remember we were – we kept reading Uta Hagen's book in at Carnegie Mellon. And it was like twenty grand a year, um, which we didn't really – Not the book. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but we kept studying the book and I just kept thinking, oh, why don't I just go study with her? You know, she's there waiting to teach and I want to learn so badly and she inspires me so much. So, what, what's interesting, though, is in reading interviews, which seem to always want to condense things, I kept seeing the phrase, she left Carnegie Mellon to study with Uta Hagen. Mm-hmm. Was it that straight a line yep. or did you, have, did you have to go audition for her? Did oh, no, of to, course I did. Of yeah. course I did. I actually left t- school to with the intention of studying with her. Didn't know if I would get in. Mm-hmm. But, but I knew I wanted to move to New York. I thought I got a phone call from my dad, and he said, "You know, listen, we're you know financially, it's I think it was right around the time of the crash or something. It was like my dad was a stockbroker, and um, it was going to be tough, and I was going to have to get uh, loans or a job or something." Mm-hmm. And I said, "You know what, Dad? I'm going to move to New York." And it was that quick of a conversation, and it was that it was so clear in my mind. 
Uh, I'd already packed my bags after the conversation in my mind. So I said, I'm going to move and I'm going to study with, with Uta Hagen. And um, I worked so hard on my audition pieces. I auditioned on September 26, 1990, and uh, she accepted me into her class. And, and that. But I moved to New York not knowing whether I would, she would accept me or not. But I had, knew that I would keep trying. Had you been to New York before? I had been to New York on a business trip with my dad for three, two and a half days. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what New York was. I had no idea. I had books. I saw movies. But I had no idea. I had an idea of what I thought it was. But I had no – I was so unprepared. I didn't know how to write a check. I had $300 in my pocket. I was so unprepared to lead a life – but sometimes ignorance is bliss, you know. It's like sometimes what you don't know protects you. <laughs> it's it was a really rough go there for a while, but uh, that's what I did. So I'm literally off the bus, like I'm that girl who came with a, a wad of cash in her pocket, hoping that this woman who you met once in high school would accept you as a student. Hoping that she would accept me. What was the study with her? I mean, what was the nature of the work that you did? The thing that I loved about Uta Hagen is that. She was never a guru teacher. It was all about your invi- your individual journey. It was very much about teaching, giving you the skills so that you could figure it out. It wasn't come follow me, this is the way. It was let me teach you these practical skills so that you can build your own career and your own journey. Um, there was nothing warm and fuzzy about her. She said, you'll call me Miss, Miss Hogan. And you barely spoke to her out of class. It was so frightening. She was she was so formidable. She was so powerful and so um, regal to me, to everyone. That uh, and yet her information was so easily communicated. She she knew how to teach you how to be a good actor. She knew how to give you the skills. I remember, um, you know, I studied with her for I guess fifteen years before she died. And the greatest thing that you could ever hear in your in the class was, I have no criticism. And I heard it twice in 15 years or but 12 years, with her whatever from it was. But you studied 1990 to 2005? Yeah, until she died, which was, I think, 2000, 2000. I'm not sure the exact year uh-huh. that she died. But yes, I would go back and forth. And occasionally I would get like a TV job or a Broadway job and I would leave. But I remember I was still studying with her while I was doing uh, Broadway shows. Hmm. Sure, certainly, yes. Why? I mean, looking at this list of, of all of the work that you did in that period, why did you feel the need to continue to study? Oh, uh, I still feel like I, you know, I, 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 you know, we all have. Hopefully, if you're if you're lucky, you have a mentor in your life. It's like. I wish to emulate everything she stood for in terms of the theater. She had such a reverence for it. There was such I mean her book is called Respect for Acting for a reason. She just had such a reverence for the craft and for actors and for a, the power of living a life in the theater was just so um, strong in her and she really instilled these values for me and 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 I get emotional talking about it because she she just was um, – taught me everything that I believe now about the theater. I'm so passionate about it and I really mm. feel so reverential toward it and, and uh, um, oh gosh, it's, it's hard to say all the things that she taught me but um, it's hard to it, – it's, it's hard okay. to – yeah. It, it, and she just really – Don't force yourself but clearly she really, and she gave something, it, you, she, something kept drawing you back to She her. gave it to you. She said it's yours. It's your responsibility to be the best actor that you can be. It's your responsibility to keep getting better. It's your responsibility to make things good and make yourself – you know, have a great experience in the theater and make the theater better. Hmm. You know, and she – it wasn't about her. It was about – and then we became friends after a while, you know, once I started working more and more and she became ill and we became very good friends. And uh, after she had a stroke, I, and I would go visit her in the hospital all the time. And, you know, she just she just meant everything to me. Hmm. Yeah. Taking classes with her certainly was not the same as being in college. It was not – did not occupy – 40 hours a week for you. Mm-hmm. Were you immediately working on getting work? Oh, absolutely. You know, I um, I waitressed and nannied and washed floors at a gym and, 
made shakes and you know uh, it was cappuccino bar. I was a perfume spray girl. It was I did everything that I could, but it, mm. but class was the structure of my life. I went Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, then you rehearsed with a scene partner. But you, you, I was always looking for work. I had done a, a horror film in um, in <laughs> Carnegie Mellon right before I left. I auditioned to play a zombie in uh, um, George Romero and Robert, uh, Tom Savini's uh, remake of Night of the Living Dead. And I rolled around the floor and gagged and you know tried to act like a zombie. And they actually asked me to audition for the teenage screaming teenager. Judy Rose Larson. So I got that part. And so when I came to New York, I had this movie coming out, this horror film coming out. So that helped me get a, a great agent. And uh, I started auditioning immediately. Huh. And my first job was actually as an understudy in with George C. Scott in On Borrowed Time. Well, when you say not just with, but directed by. Directed so, by and So starring. George C. Scott yes. saw you and said – Okay. Yes. She's, yes. She's okay as an understudy. Um, Nathan Lane. Nathan was in Lane. That production. Conrad Bain. Teresa Wright. Yeah. Quite quite a crew. Great did you crew. get to go on? I never went on, but I did go on for the off stage. I was also understudying the off stage voice. Uh-huh. And I so I got to do a scene <laughs> off stage, and I remember I, I've never been more nervous in my life. Uh, the woman who did the offstage voice was off and I recovered her and Nathan Lane was standing right here and my hands were so sweating. He just grabbed my hand and said, just breathe. And I had a scene with uh, George C. Scott offstage. Huh. Good afternoon, Miss. Good afternoon, Mr. Northrop. How do, Miss Tritt? Looks like it's going to rain. Looks like it. Well, I got to hurry. Mustn't get caught short. <laughs> uh, how do, Miss Tritt? You know, <laughs> something kind of like that. Yeah. Ridiculous, but that was my Broadway debut as an offstage voice. <laughs> Thank you. It was great because I got to watch uh, being an understudy because I got to watch before getting thrown into the lead in the show with you know, George C. Scott. I got to watch um, all these wonderful actors perform every single night and uh, be influenced by George C. Scott, and who was a wonderful, kind man to me. Well, I was going to say, you know, as an understudy, did you have much interaction with him? Or I got were to you watch. Really- which yeah. is the best teacher, I think. If you can observe hmm. and put yourself into it in your in, in your imagination, how would I behave? That's that's really the best. If you can, if you can, you know, being a reader also. Daniel Swee's a great casting director in town, made me um, a, a reader at, at one point, which was wonderful because I got to watch how people audition, and I got to watch. He trusted me enough to not talk outside of school, so I got to listen to what the directors said about the actors. I got to listen to how they chose people for plays and that gave me everything. That that changed my life really because I I always went like, oh, okay, so the best person doesn't always get the job. Sometimes it's something completely different that they need for the job and that that really gave me a great insight into the business part of it. So watching is everything I think. Hmm. When you got to make your Broadway debut a year after being offstage voice – you were with another extraordinary company of actors mm. in Two Shakespearean Actors, directed by Jack O'Brien. Jack O'Brien. And the company included – and I saw the show and mm. I thought – and I just looked this up and I thought, good God, I didn't remember all of these people being in it. Brian Bedford and Victor Garber, of course, Hope Davis, Jelko Ivanek, mm-hmm. Judy Kuhn, Laura Innes and Francis Conroy, mm-hmm. to name but a few. Mm-hmm. Because Jennifer it was, Van Dyke, yeah. It, it was, was like an incredible company, an incredible company. So so what was it to, to, to finally get out there on stage and know you were going to be doing it eight times a week? Oh, it was thrilling. It was just so thrilling. and and just But just being around the camaraderie, the esprit de corps of being around that many great actors, that many people who live the theatrical life – you know, it was just well. Brian Bedford alone oh, could probably occupy. Forget it, Victor Garber. Victor Garber, I had been in love with from um, Anthony and Sweeney Todd, which is my favorite musical ever. Ever yours too. Yeah. <laughs> the best, which which made me completely uh, in awe this year when I was nominated with uh, Angela Lansbury, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But it's uh, just in awe. So that was a great. Ex- Two Shakespearean actors was the, the quintessential theatrical experience. It did not have a tremendously long run, as I recall. It was a Lincoln. It was a Lincoln Center production, mm-hmm. so it had the run that it was intended to have. Okay, so it wasn't. It wasn't foreshortened. So you understood going in. Yes, this is how long it's going to last. And it was not a. Com- it was not a huge commercial venture. We didn't have any movie stars in it. It was like it's, it was sort of like a, th- a purely theatrical, uh, sort of love letter 
to the theater. So, you know, it's like we were happy just to have our great run. Well, as you say, it was it was Lincoln Center and that same year you got to be in your first Broadway musical. That's right. My favorite year. Now, right. you mentioned, it's interesting, was Daniel Swee already doing the casting at Lincoln Daniel Center Swee at that time? Daniel Swee was not quite oh, yet. Oh, well, I thought he maybe was, that was the secret. No, no, he wasn't quite yet. It was Billy Hopkins, I believe. Hmm. I think it was Billy Hopkins, or Ira, Ira Weitzman was uh, one of the producers there, but I think it was Billy Hopkins. I'm hmm. not... I, you know what? I'm not sure. I feel terrible about it's, that. It's okay. I just, I just wondered about the connection. But, but let me ask you about my favorite year because... It sounds like so much of your experience was with plays and preparing for plays. Going into a new Broadway musical, in any way, you're getting to see a very big machine mm. be put together and you're inside of it. Mm. Can, can you talk oh, a little it's, about it's, that? Again, it's like thrilling. It's just thrilling to be a part of every single moment of that. The rehearsals when something goes well, something doesn't go well, when you see it going wrong and you, you don't know how they're going to fix it and then they fix it. or the, It's just like it, that machine is the best kind of comfort, the best kind of camp. It's like, it's like being the most glorious sleepaway camp because you're together all the time and you're just having a great wild adventure and it, it's pretty amazing. And that show had several major workshops, uh, yes. at least a couple. I think I was in two of them, two workshops. And the cast changed. I mean, because Victor Garber certainly had done at least one of the workshops. Mm-hmm. He didn't end up doing the show. Right. Then the part was was Tim Curry. Right. What was it like to watch the show perhaps even change shape to accommodate the different personalities of the different performers? You know, it was it, – they both brought something so exciting to it. You know, it's like they were both so different and, and – um, it's sort of like Victor was like a matinee idol and then um, uh, um, Tim Curry was more of a um, uh, sort of randy British, you know, troublemaker. So it was like two completely different takes on the role, which both I thought worked beautifully. So, so my favorite year, which didn't have the run that people hoped for, I, mm-hmm. I know that for a fact. Um, but again, Lincoln Center Theater, here it is again, next Broadway show in the Summer House. Oh, is that my next one? Yeah, uh, yeah, in the Summer House. It's it's clearly you you were liked by the people oh, at Lincoln they, Center. I worked there for, for many years and I, I, I mean, I, I've had chances to work there um, in the last few years and I, I, I intend – I mean I still have a relationship with them and they're just great, great company of, of people. Um, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have a future definitely with them. They're, we're buds. So – and and though I'm that skipping was corny. over, I just said we're buds. <laughs> <laughs> you're buds with the theater. Buds you, with the theater. You know, you're you're well, a Facebook a friend and with Andre Bishop. Yeah, and 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 they're they're just so supportive and extraordinary. They're they're doing this these extraordinary shows that are so expensive that won't get done in the commercial Broadway theater that are risky that are they just have great supporters. They have you know, I just. I just love companies like the Roundabout or Manhattan Theater Club who do shows that they're not quite sure they're going to sell to the to the commercial theater. That take the money that people donate and you know and and do extraordinary theatrical events because we really need that. We can't just have the shows that we know maybe are going to sell to the tourists. It's like I, I just love I support fully those people. Well, it's interesting because again, as I'm. I'm realizing this as I'm going through. You did The Heiress, mm. which was Lincoln Center Theater, yes. so produced in a Broadway house. Yes. Um, you went off-Broadway the following year in John Robbie Bates' play, Country. A Fair Country. Mm. Um, with Roundabout, you did You Never Can Tell with Signature Theater Company, which is off-Broadway, uh, uh, as well as, you know, as Bosoms and Neglect. I mean, you... So a lot of your Broadway experience is through the not-for-profit world. I think most actors' Broadway experience is through the non-for-profit world because I think they – you know, it's just – it's such an extraordinary place to work because it's so – the material is so eclectic and it's so uh, uh, – there's so many – they do so many shows. It's like it's just without those places, without the support, you know, supporting those places, it's like – there are very few jobs for actors without those extraordinary places. They, they, I think Roundabout produces like, oh, I'm going to be exaggerating right now, but I think like 10 shows a year or 15 shows a year. They have four or five theaters and, and uh, you know, without those places, there's, there's, 
there's no room for us to do the roles that we can do and the productions that we can do. And and I'm so blessed to have relationships with all of those theaters because uh, they they're really the ones you know churning out the great experimental work. So proposals, which we mentioned earlier, would really be the first commercial. Production. I guess it would be Manny Eisenberg, man. So in love with him. He's the greatest guy ever. Greatest producer. And produced every Neil Simon yep. play since about 1972. He's such a mensch. He's so wonderful. We went on tour for – I was with that show for about a year. We went on tour all over the place and he was there all the time. And he has the best theater stories and the best – You know, really befriended me. And any question I had about producing or how things worked, he would always – he's a friend to this day. You know, He's a wonderful guy. But touring around with Manny and Neil, and Neil, yes, of course, that's that's yes. really got to be something. Yes. In again, a new work, not a revival, yes. but but something that's that's being created at the time. Was that was proposal something that went through a lot of changes? Uh, we did go through a lot of changes. Neil would come up with a lot of uh, new pages every day, and we just we do new pages. We get them in the day and do them at night. And he went through a lot of changes for that show. Yeah, scenes were in, scenes were out. You know, it was it was that was thrilling to me. Was there ever a sense that some of those changes were being generated by the personality of the actors? Was there ever anything that you think that was done when you're doing a Neil because Simon you saw something in you? Uh, yeah, I think pretty much Neil Simon has his own vision of what the story should be. Although he he does write for actors as well, but but I think he's pretty much he's pretty much surefire knows what he wants in his plays and productions. He'll he'll ta- tailor something to you, um, but I think he's. Uh, Tried and true. (laughs) Um, I want to ask, just because I I didn't have the chance to see you in it, but it's a play I happen to love, Bosoms and Neglect, the John Ah. Guerra play that you did at at Signature. At that point, it was already a play of some 20 years vintage, I believe. It's funny. uh, Marion Mercer, uh, the the woman who did – were you going to say that? Oh. Go, go right ahead. ahead. Go no, ahead. No, 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 no. Go, no, go ahead, please. She, she's. We, I think we're the only two actresses who have done that show in New York City, which I thought was kind of wonderful. And we have that, to explain um, Marion Mercer. I'm sorry, Marion Mercer is the original Marge McDougal in Promises, Promises. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, are uh, there any other Marion Mercer roles you're looking to play? <laughs> I know, right? I should call her up. <laughs> she, uh, um, yeah. I guess it's um, it, it, that was a wonderful. John Guare was there the whole time, and I loved that play. I just loved it. Just loved that play. Hmm. It was such a great experience. Mary Louise Wilson was extraordinary, and David Aaron Baker and um, Jim Houghton over at Signature Theater Company was a great producer on it, and Nikki Martin directed. It was a great experience. Hmm. I would do that play again. It's 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 an interesting piece, and I'm struck piece. by the fact that it's it's not done more. Yeah, um, because small cast, major playwright. Mary Louise Wilson was incredible. She's mm. that role. People loved that role. Like she's like yeah, it's, we had the whole second act, and she was amazing. Mm. Next up from intimate uh, three three character, a fairly enormous. The Iceman cometh, both mm. in length and and involvement again. Such an amazing cast, certainly led by Kevin Spacey, but Robert Sean Leonard, Michael Emerson, Paul Giamatti. Um, what was the experience of being in that major Eugene O'Neill work in a commercial setting with a major star with those other great actors? I, again, it was like that two Shakespearean actors experience. It was thrilling. It was like everybody wanted to be there and were excited to do this great four-and-a-half-hour work. Robert John Leonard and I, uh, Leonard and I had just done um, a Shaw play, um, you, you, never, you, you Never Can, can tell, tell, right, yeah. together. And he was reading The Iceman Comus, and, and, he, and he had been cast. And I knew the casting director, but I knew they hadn't cast Cora. And I think originally they wanted me to audition for one of the, um, the smaller parts, one of the smaller uh, um, whores, whores. <laughs> And so I just said you – know, I prepared for Cora and I just went and I said I'd like to read for, for Cora and um, kind of, you know, trying to be, you know uh, – anyway, went in and did it well, and I got the part. Do you do that much? Do you, do you no, go I in for auditions and say, I know you no, want me I for this but I'd much. like to do this? They thought I was too young for it but I just sort of – I was 27 and I thought, you know, she'd be old if she were 27 and she were still, you know, whoring. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew that, that I could do that part. I knew, I loved that part so much. She had this great speech in the middle of it and um, 
I, I just really prepared and I went in and, and Howard Davies, you know, gave me the part and I was so happy. I don't do that often. I usually trust. I have a lot of trust in casting directors, um, especially now that I've been around for so long. I've auditioned for everything, every, everything under the sun and uh, they know me and they trust me and they know what I can do. So usually they'll, they'll let me audition for pretty much, you know, whatever I feel like I'm right for. Hmm. But I usually, I usually, you know, trust their judgment as well. But this time, Jay Binder was the casting director, and uh, um, and he said, "Okay, you know, give it, a, give it a shot." And he trusted me. Now you'll correct me if my memory is wrong, but in contrast to Promises, Promises, where you're only on stage for a relatively short portion of the play, and when you're on stage, it's it's all about your character interacting right. with Sean. In the case of a show, Iceman Cometh, it's an enormous play <laughs> in which you're on stage a lot, but there are long periods mm. where it's totally about just being part of the mm. scene. How do you – how does an actor deal with that? I mean are you – were you on for the entire famous monologue? Yes, of course. So uh, uh, what, what are you doing in your, in your head – when you're when a monologue like that is going on, you pretend you've never heard it before, huh? Imagine something different, and then be surprised by what actually comes out. Uda Hagen taught me that. She actually had a class, a, 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 a special class that she did about long runs, and she was a, it was an experimental class, and she invited me to be a part of it. People that had been working a lot. Uh, I think Cynthia Nixon might have been in the class with me, but. Um, she said, "You have to expect something different. You use your imagination. You, you know, like I don't know what question you're going to ask me next, and it's just sort of like I'm going to imagine you're going to ask me something, and then you ask me something else. Mm-hmm. Then I'm surprised. It's about using your imagination. You have to be surprised by what the person's saying. But that's true. That's true. Certainly, for any show, mm-hmm. you, I would imagine. But in the case of where you have such a long point where you're only reacting." To what's going on or in some cases possibly even not supposed to be doing a lot. It was reminiscent of, of – uh, I, I just did Love, Lost and What I Wore before I went into um, to uh, Promises, Promises. And it that was very – it was reminiscent of, of – of, uh, um, Iceman Cometh. That may be the only time people will compare Love, Lost and What I Wore <laughs> – to Iceman Cometh to take nothing I away from I either put project. I not Nor Efron and Delia Efron to write something that, you know, uh, they're pretty extraordinary writers. Um, they've got the handle on the, the heart- heartbeat. They really do. I mean, yeah. people love their stuff and it's they're just so insightful. Uh, it seems simple what they're talking about a lot of the time, but they are so insightful and so witty and funny. Um, but on stage, I thought it was the easiest job in the world, that show. But hmm. really, you're on stage for 90 minutes and you're listening to the other women tell their stories. I thought it was the easiest job in the world. And then after I ran for quite a while in it, I was like, oh, this is kind of a hard job because I have to pretend like I've never heard this story before. Um, and that was reminiscent of, of Iceman Cometh. Huh. But it's tough to do, to pretend like you've never heard something before. But, you know, it couldn't be done. Hmm. You'd mentioned earlier, you never can tell, you got to do another Shaw play for Roundabout. Arms and the Man. Yes. Interestingly, directed by Roger Rees. Yes. Um, having looked at all the directors, some of them may have been actors. Roger still is an actor. Was there a difference to being directed by someone who really was in a continuing career as an actor but was was working as a director? I loved it. He was so enthusiastic and so uh, supportive and energetic and very involved in the choices. Uh, there really was no difference. I mean I worked with Joe Mantello also and he was an actor. Um, it's sort of like I guess uh, Roger Reese was – more empathetic maybe because he knew that how tar- hard it was to make the choices and to make something fly and um, – but uh, yeah, I, I'm – yeah. Hmm. It was – it wasn't any different. He just was – I felt like he was a little bit more um, – I remember, but I do remember he wanted us to learn theater games and learn sonnets and stuff like that for theater games during rehearsal. And I just – I have ADD and it's like hard for me to learn my lines anyway. So I was like, I can't learn a sonnet. Don't make me do theater games with sonnets, please. Interesting. Now, we touched upon this early Shaw's on. hard to learn. It's, you know, there's a lot of talking a, in Shaw. A lot of words. <laughs> um, cabaret. Yes. So – other than 
my favorite year. You had not had a major credit in musical. I don't know if you'd gone off and done anything workshops regionally and stuff or workshops. Musicals, sure. So when how did the opportunity for cabaret come along? You know, I had I had been auditioning for a lot of big musicals and coming very close is between me and another person. So again, like casting directors just trust you. Like they've they know, they talk, they've seen, you know, it's sort of like you're in the you're in the thick of it and you're in the if there was a big musical happening i mean i could list them all but it would be you know not my style to do so uh, almost almost getting a job in a big mm-hmm. musical so once i auditioned for cabaret i think it was to replace natasha right away but i was doing iceman cometh and that wasn't i think i was just on the list to be a replacement and uh, it was so thrilling to do that job. I have to tell you, I would do that again in a heartbeat. Uh, Rob Marshall and uh, Sam Mendes did such an extraordinary job with that show. And I loved being a part of it, every minute of it. Who did you get to do it with? Because certainly it ran a while and I don't know where you came in the chronology. I did it with, um, I did it with uh, Matt McGrath and Michael Hayden and Dick Latessa mm-hmm. and Carol Shelley. Um, it was a great company, and, and it was such a such great shape when I was there, and it was just a it was a, an extraordinary experience. And again, I felt like I it was such about the character. It wasn't about singing, being the best singer in the whole world. It was about the character, and I felt like I sang it really well because it was about the character, you know. And uh, I just loved being a part of. If that If she production. were the greatest performer in the world, she wouldn't be playing in that club, probably. That's exactly what I felt, and then that's what they felt too, you know. Yeah. So. Um, but in this case, and it seems like it might have been the first and only time you were a replacement. It was, and it was a strange experience. It was a very strange experience. In what way? Uh, you rehearse by yourself for three weeks. Cynthia Rubia, who I worshipped from her career from Cats and A Chorus Line, and she was actually the person who taught me the dance numbers and the singing numbers. And um, so, but it was just her really that was teaching me everything, and the stage manager. And you rehearse alone, and then you have one day with the company. It's called a put-in, and you do just your things. It's not a run of the show. It's not with lights or um, I don't think it's with lighting or or sets. Um, and then you're just thrown. Into the into the show that night with the lights and the set, and you hope you make it. And and uh, yeah, it was a very strange, disconcerting experience. But you know, after three days, I was fine and part of the company and loved it. But it must be interesting to find the character relationships in front of an audience. Oh, it is. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because you can't let it go. You know, it's all about learning it, learning the story, and then giving it away. When you're still learning it, you can't give it away. Hmm. So, and I, and I was only in for for a few months, so it wasn't, you know, you, it's hard to get comfortable in that amount of time. Hmm. Because at least with a musical, at least when you hit the musical numbers, there are beats you've got to hit. There are pacing things that are controlled and dictated yes. to you. So I guess it's in some ways it might be easier going yes. into Yes, and you get the dance steps right and you know you've done it right and but that but that production was extraordinary. Like I no loved being a part of that. Yeah, hmm. I loved being a part of that. Well, this brings us to Noises Off. Mm. Um Jeremy Sam's directed. The company included Patty Lapone, Edward Hibbert, T.R. Knight, Richard Easton, and Peter Gallagher. Another – I mean I just – as I was Prince. going through this, I'm thinking to myself, good lord, she's gotten to be in Yeah, Faith Prince and Tom companies. McCarthy was also uh, – Tom McCarthy was actually working on his first film, The Station Agent, while we were doing that. And he's become like a huge movie director now and he's a great actor. And yeah, it was a great company. And we started rehearsing right after 9-11, the day after 9-11 – was our wow. second day of rehearsal. The day of 9-11 was our second day of rehearsal. So that was tricky. Sorry, that's not what you wanted to talk about. But <laughs> No, but that's very interesting because, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I, ta- I spoke earlier, I think I spoke about big m- musicals being a big machine. Noises Off is one of the most incredible machines ever created for the stage. It is. In the sense of it's like farce on steroids. Meticulously crafted. It's like he's a, a genius mathematician. So on the one hand, in the wake of 9-11, not a time when people's spirits were up, but it's also not a show where in rehearsal you're spending time 
breaking each other up, you've got to be so precise in hitting your marks in that thing. Mm-hmm. How you know what was the process of of dealing with the intricacy, the physical intricacy of noises off and creating characters at the same time? Uh, and the influence of nine eleven on that? Do you mean? Not even it's so much. A, just it was it, you know it's it's just a it's a it's a meticulously crafted play it's a, almost a perfect play it's just so well done and uh jeremy samson had experience doing it in london so he had a lot of great tips for us but it was just uh, a great process you know it was an emotional process everyone was you know we were dealing with the 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 911 repercussions and the emotional psychological uh disturbances of that and confusion and social implications of all of that. Um, and meanwhile, we got to focus on this extraordinarily unapologetic, comedic play. And I think that's the greatest gift that I could ever have gotten. It is an unapologetic, unambiguous, comedic farce. And there's nothing no intricacies to figure out, like emotionally. It's sort of like this is a cactus in the ass is funny. It's always going to be funny. It's never not funny. <laughs> There's and, the quote. <laughs> and Yeah, and you know what? And I think it was just the greatest gift that we could have given to audiences because it was so unambiguously funny. It was so um, – you know, people. I remember Meryl, Meryl Streep came and she said it was like medicine. It was like an invitation to – let go and laugh. It was like just there's nothing to think about. We're going to do this show for you. We're going to take over for two hours. And it was just unapologetically sort of like therapeutically funny. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy that that was the show um, that I was in during that time because it was uh, it was healing for me and for, you know, when you couldn't open your mail backstage because there was anthrax in it, mm-hmm. a threat of anthrax or a threat of theater. But we just would laugh at some point. There was a threat of the theater being bombed, oh, <laughs> which is like, well, I'm going on. You going on? Hmm. It was um, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to be during that time. And people were so happy that we were there and that they got to see it. And maybe that's why they enjoyed it so much because everything was so heightened. You know, their lives, everyone's lives were so heightened. And then there, there was this sort of like unapologetic playground. Hmm. Was it a dangerous show to be in? Oh, so dangerous. <laughs> We had these. We had a million dollar set, and this the doors were a hundred pound steel doors. They had to be, otherwise it would rattle, and it would, you know. And it was so dangerous. And I've never ever been a giggler ever, ever in the theater. I mean, a tiny bit with Sean right now because it's just so uh, fun, but never been a giggler. And I remember during that show, I was so tired. I was also actually. Um, the bus, even the buses weren't working very well during that time. So I would have to walk to the theater. <laughs> you know, the wow. subways weren't working. And I was so tired that I was just so happy to get up and down those stairs. And one time I got hit in the head with the door and Tom McCarthy saw, watched my head, expo- you know, completely swell up like an egg on my head. It was a very, very demanding physical show. Yeah. But, mm. it, but I mean, so fun. I would do anything for a laugh. <laughs> I would. I, I just would. I, there you have it. You can end the interview now. Well, I have to ask. You, you've you now been working professionally about 13 years on Broadway. Um, you received a Tony 13 for your, years? What, what about uh, 20 years? 19 years? 19 I'm years. sorry. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I should not about, do math in interview no, that's at the same okay. time. I can't about do math either, years, but I know it's been about, about 19 I, I, years. But, oh, um, since Noises Off, you mean. Well, Noises Off from, from your first, and it was actually about 10 years, but um, – what was the impact of a Tony? Oh, you mean my first Tony? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like 12 years since I was 13 yeah. years. You're right. Um, I, you know, it was so extraordinary. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But I felt like during that time, I felt like I had so many friends in the theater by the time that happened. I'd worked with so many people. I felt like everyone – it was just a big community to me. And it felt like everyone was just so happy for me. And I felt so happy that people enjoyed – that kind of performance and uh, it was glorious. It really was glorious. It just made me, you know, everybody in the company was so happy. Patty Lapone was so happy. You know, everybody was just, uh, it was a glorious time. And though we don't spend time on this program talking about TV and film, 
you've had the opportunity to be a regular on three series. Yes. All yes. in the wake of that, if I'm correct? Uh, yes. All in the wake of that. Yes. So so it got you noticed, perhaps. It got me noticed. I had actually had a, I had done a Frasier, um, which was so exciting to have uh, Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce give me my second Tony because I had done a bunch of Frasers with mm-hmm. – actually not a bunch, two Frasers with them. And uh, – the writers from Fra- the Fraser uh, actually wrote a series for me, which came really before the Tony. But but you know, it's it was all in that time period. So, mm-hmm. um, but yes, mm-hmm. it was great. Now, there's one credit that our researcher turned up. You did one show in London. I loved that show, Fuddy Mears, David how, Lindsay Abair. How did you come? To work in London, you know, um, Sam Mendes came to me, and uh, and they just uh, did I audition? I can't remember if I auditioned. I think I did audition. Um, I did audition for uh, for um, Carol Newling and Sam Mendes started a company in London um, to do plays and movies, and and they wanted an American play by David Lindsay Bear called Fuddy Mears. And they wanted an American actress to play the lead role. And so I cannot tell you how thrilling it was to be in London for whatever it was, nine months or a year. We think we toured a little bit and then we went to, to the um, uh, the West End. Huh. It was ex- it was, otherwise an all-English company? Uh, I think there were – John Gallagher. John Gallagher from oh. American Idiot and from uh, uh, Spring Awakening was my son in mm-hmm. the show. Huh. The son in the show, yes. And there were a few other American actors in it as well. Um, uh, let's see. But what – it's interesting to to bring an American play with American actors to London. Had you spent any time in London before? I had never been to London. No, I had never been to London. Hmm. That was my first time. I loved it. It's like a gentle New York. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a New York with really, really pretty buildings and cool taxis. I loved it. I loved living in London. I spent all my money there, but I loved it. Huh. And because our time's drawing short, I, I have to jump over a few things like, like Pig Farm. But I do want to ask about Mauritius because mm. um, we were talking about the not-for-profits and there's there's Manhattan Theater Club. Um, again, a new play and a play by a female playwright, mm. which is sadly all too rare on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um what was it like working on on that play? You know, I wanted to do that play um, because uh, Doug Hughes asked me, and uh, Teresa Re- Teresa Rebeck wrote it, and I've always loved her work. And it was a new character for me. It was a very um, an ugly character. Like it wasn't. It was. It was the bad girl. It was. It was the not the bad girl, but it was the sister that was unlike it was an unlikable character and i never played an unlikable character and i really loved i couldn't put the play down I, I remember reading the play and i couldn't put it down and i thought you know it's not the greatest role i've ever read but i want to be a part of this story this mm. story is so interesting this story is so unlike anything i know about it was about uh, philatelists uh, stamp collectors and f murray abraham was doing it and bobby Cannavale and allison pill it was extraordinary and dylan baker yeah it was a great company. and i was like oh sign me up you know and doug hughes i'd never worked with and i i've always loved his work so i was like sign me up sometimes it's for the experience and and i love doing the character the audience actually booed me i remember the first night, I they were so emotionally involved in the story that they booed me. And I, I remember the first night going like, what? You don't like me? What do you mean? And I thought, isn't this great that they believe that I am this woman, this unhappy woman? And I loved it. I loved – that's kind of how I built my whole career is doing things that I've never done before and being a part of companies that I want to spend time with. Hmm. Well – now, the company of promises, promises. Uh, you planning to stick around with it for a while? Oh yes, absolutely. My contract is through uh, through next year, so I'm really so happy being there, and we just have such a glorious time. It's such a joyful show. It is such a joyful show. The audiences just love it. They just have such a good time from the minute that that uh, light goes up on the on the set, from the minute that or the overture starts. It's hmm. just like. It's just such a joyful production. 
And uh-huh. for people who go, they now know if they look carefully in the boxes, <laughs> they might they see you peering see. out. You could continue peeking through the, the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> you turn the light off in, yes, in the loop. I've got a little you... <laughs> bite light back there. <laughs> well, Katie Finneran, first of all, congratulations oh. on on all of the accolades for your performance. And thank you for being our guest today on Downstage Center. Well, thank you. you it was a wonderful interview. Thank you so much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.